If you would, would you open a Bible to Galatians chapter 2? We're reading verses 1 to 10 this morning. And if you would, would you stand? Pray with me. Holy Spirit, inspirer of uh, these words, who in the mystery of uh, your uh, gracious work wrote this letter through the Apostle Paul with the full authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that with a humble and submissive spirits we might uh, receive it that we might uh, be granted insight and understand it, and it might be joined with faith that we might live it out. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You may be seated. Well, freedom must be won, and freedom must be guarded, or it's lost. That's a lesson that's widely seen in history, and very often there are moments that can be pointed to um, when freedom uh, was won back. Um, Often in a defining moment in a conflict, in a a war, Uh, World War II, for example, the most important uh, event that happened in uh, the Western Hemisphere was the Normandy invasion. If that invasion had failed, it's very hard to say how long it would have uh, taken or even if it would have happened. 
that the Nazi regime would have been overturned. In the East, it was the Battle of Midway after Pearl Harbor had decimated the American fleet. It was only in that battle that there was such substantial losses that it became possible uh, for uh, the Americans to overcome the Japanese fleet. And our text records one such battle. Now, I know it probably doesn't seem like that to you on the surface. It probably seems more like, well, kind of an unusually long note about an experience in Paul's uh, life. Uh, but it's much more than that. Paul perceived a great danger, and he took a big risk to ensure that the freedom of the gospel was secured. God was in work in that moment for you and for me. What I'm about to tell you this morning is of utmost importance for you and for me, and especially for you children and, and students who are here this morning. It's recorded there in verse 3, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Let me have a show of hands for those of you who have that verse mounted up in a frame in your home. <laughs> well, yes, I, I doubt very many people have uh, ever embroidered that verse <laughs> to have it uh, hang in a prominent place in their uh, homes. Um, but this verse tells us what actually is at stake in the freedom of the gospel. The central freedom of the gospel is challenged in every generation and in every human heart. It evades many people who identify themselves as Christians, and Christians can lose this freedom. Or to put it a different way, Every generation must rediscover the implications of the glorious truth that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Every generation has to revisit this issue and to understand for itself and grasp the implications of it in their own lives. And that's what I intend to show you. But before I do that, I want to show you what was and is at stake as Paul recounts the story of going up to Jerusalem. It was 14 years after his conversion that he goes up. And you have to ask, why does he write about this? Uh, well, there's good reason to think that he's actually responding uh, to a charge that was made by the false teachers the false brothers that had come among the churches in Galatia. And it went something like this. At one time, Paul was summoned by the apostles to appear uh, before James, uh, Peter, and John. And he agreed to obey their instructions. And among them were that he was to take up an offering for the poor in Judea, which of course he's doing. That, that validates the story we're telling you. And Paul is setting the narrative straight a narrative that these false teachers made up and crafted to discredit him. And Paul speaks of both the cause and the purpose of his visit in verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and, and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. 
And so Paul was not obeying a summons uh, from uh, Jerusalem. No, rather he was obeying a direct revelation uh, from the Lord. And the reason he went up uh, was to inform the apostles about his ministry and to make sure that his efforts were not in vain. Well, just what does that mean? Well, it means that Paul was afraid. Afraid of what? Well, it's first really important for me to kind of clear away uh, the weeds here so that you understand what he doesn't mean by this. Paul doesn't go to Jerusalem because he's afraid that his gospel's the wrong message. He doesn't go up to get advice about preaching and teaching or to receive extra instruction. He's not submitting his gospel uh, to them. No, everything we saw in chapter 1 tells us that he got his gospel directly from Jesus Christ in his encounter on the Damascus Road. Paul didn't go up to get a stamp of approval uh, or to get a review to post on Facebook about his uh, gospel. No, he was absolutely certain that he was preaching the true gospel. So what is he afraid of? Well, he went to inform the apostles about his ministry and brings with him the fruit of that ministry because from a human perspective, Paul thought it was possible that the church in Jerusalem would make the wrong decision and undermine the unity of the church. Now Paul's trusting God, but he's not presuming on God. And so he asks for this meeting. He takes a risk in this uh, meeting because he understood the reality of sin and the bent of the human heart. Paul knew that people were saying, well, Paul preaches a watered-down gospel, a law-free gospel, a performance-free gospel. And his critics said that the full gospel means belief in Jesus and obedience to the law of the Old Testament. And if the apostles Peter, James, and John weren't clear about what was at stake, well, then the Gentile Christians uh, would be expected to eat kosher food or be circumcised. There would be a deep divide between uh, Jerusalem and Paul, and that word would spread to the churches of Galatia, and they would be confused, and the Gentile Christians would be viewed as second class. And Paul's converts would be pressured to become Jewish. Paul saw all of that was at stake. He feared the fracture of the church, the confusion of the Gentiles, and the loss of the freedom that the gospel brings. That's what the stakes were in that meeting. And that's why Paul brings Titus along. He's an uncircumcised Greek who's become a Christian. Because Paul doesn't want to discuss these issues in some sort of abstract way. No, he wants it to be concrete and personal as they look in the eyes of Titus. And uh, the apostles did not insist uh, that uh, Titus be circumcised. That's the upshot of the meeting. But he notes in verse 4 that it was a difficult meeting. In fact, his grammar actually uh, conveys this as well. That false brothers intruded in the meeting. Uh, they had ill intent 
They came as undercover agents, as co-conspirators, and their desire was to make slaves out of Christians. No doubt they claim to be Christians, but Paul doesn't mince words here. This is one of the strongest letters uh, that he writes. It's one of the most confrontational uh, uh, of all his uh, letters. He says, they're false brothers. Although undoubtedly they were members in good standing in the church of Jerusalem. And Paul relates the outcome of this meeting uh, first in verse 6 when he writes, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. Now, Paul's not dissing Peter, James, and John. (laughs) It might seem like that. He's just saying they're just men, and they can err. In fact, they do err. We'll take that up shortly in the letter. Um, And that the authority of the gospel does not come from men. It comes from the message itself. And so the first outcome was that the Jerusalem apostles didn't add anything. What could they have added? The ceremonial law with its innumerable rules about how to be clean before God. Rules that touched every part of life from clothes to food uh, to the cutting of your hair and personal hygiene. God gave these rules for two reasons. One, to make it hard for Jews to intermarry or have business or actually have much contact at all uh, with the nations around them because the religion of the nations around them was idolatrous. And those interactions, which actually proved often to be the case in Israel's history, would be absorbed by the people and Israel itself would stumble into idolatry, into false uh, religion. They also served to create a cultural identity uh, and separated them from the other peoples of the world. But the other reason is to show that, that you cannot make yourself clean enough to be close to a holy God. The point of not eating pork or shrimp, and pork is on the menu, I believe, uh, today, is to show that you need a Savior. These false teachers, these Judaizers, were teaching just the opposite, that you could make yourself pure and more acceptable to God by strictly keeping kosher, by keeping all these rules. And the New Testament's emphatic that that is of no spiritual value. Hebrews 9.9 says this, The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipers. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations uh, applying until the time of the new order. Or as Paul develops it in uh, the letter to the Colossians. It is only in Jesus Christ that we can be holy in His sight without blame and free from accusation. Now these ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and we honor them not by ignoring them uh, uh, but instead uh, by honoring the very purpose for which they are giving by relying entirely upon Jesus Christ for our standing with God. And so the acceptance of Titus as a Christian by Peter, James, and John made vivid 
that becoming spiritually clean and acceptable is only through Christ and not through any deeds or rituals. And one implication of this is is this, that Gentiles could become full uh, members of the people of God without having to become Jews. That in fact, people of any culture can be Christian without giving up their culture. And the second outcome is this, it's in verse 9, that the apostles extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul. They're signaling that Paul's their partner in uh, ministry. Uh, They're acknowledging God's blessing uh, on his uh, ministry. Uh, And uh, as partners, uh, they uh, hold and proclaim the same gospel. Their unity rests on the gospel. And the false brethren were isolated as a result. So you can see the Jerusalem apostles, if they'd not been courageous and clear-headed in the face of pressure from the false brothers, the church would have been split and two different religions would have uh, arisen. The false teachers would have hijacked much of the church into a legalistic religion. And God did an amazing thing because Paul, in response to this revelation, took this risk. Now, here's, here's where, that's the background so you can understand the principle and what was at stake. Because always preaching has to be rooted in the text of Scripture. But now I want to show you the implications of that and why this is an issue for all of us in this generation and especially why it's of importance uh, for those of you who are students Uh, here today. So Paul is saying this, that if you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a requirement to make you clean, if you say, I have to believe in Christ and I also have to do this, if you have to add anything to make yourself acceptable, then you lose your freedom and you've become a slave now, Paul's fighting the circumcision party, and, and here's what we uh, face. They were trying to add something, and there are three arenas in which Christians often add something. One is in the spiritual, another is in the psychological, and the last one's in the cultural. So there's a tendency of the human heart to want to rely on something Uh, to be secure and to maintain our acceptance with God because this is how all the rest of our relationships work. This is the essence of getting married. If you get married, you should think about it carefully because you will have to spend much of your time in marriage seeking to please your spouse so that there's harmony in your marriage. (laughs) That's how marriage works. That's how most relationships uh, work. And I'm sure you boys and girls know this is how it works with mom and dad. They have expectations, and if you don't meet them, well, you're not quite as acceptable uh, to them. It doesn't mean they're going to abandon you, but, you know, they're not smiling at you. And within the human heart, There's a tremendous inclination to do just that in our relationship with God. And so in many times and in many places, the church has turned to moralism and legalism. 
Now this moralistic impulse leads the church to say it's very important that you dress a certain way, that you do a certain thing, that you keep certain spiritual practices. The list needs to be very specific, very doable, and clear. Because you want to know by that list where you stand. You're keeping score. It's just like weighing yourself in the morning. You know exactly where you stand. Loving your neighbor as yourself is an impossibly high standard with all kinds of open-ended implications by design. And moralists and legalists tend to actually ignore that. No, you want something like don't drink alcohol, don't go to movies or gamble or dance or eat this or that. These rules are clear. And if you keep them, you end up relying on them as a part of the foundation. So if you keep them, and this is the subtle part, you end up relying on them for your foundation of being right with God and acceptable with Him. In other words, clean enough for Him. Because that's exactly what the ceremonial law was about. And even the Ten Commandments can turn into a legalism that becomes the functional foundation of your relationship with God. It's just subtly our hearts tend to say, I believe in Jesus, but I must live by Christian principles or biblical principles. Let's just take the Ninth Commandment, which says you shall not bear false witness, which is uh, just an old way of saying don't lie. Now, God is a God of truth, and this commandment is not arbitrary. It's a reflection of who He is and who we were made to be uh, as image bearers. And uh, we, we, we do something like this. You see, if I make it through a day without lying, without exaggerating, misrepresenting myself, with myself look better uh, than I actually am, uh, without a little white lie, you know, to move through an awkward social uh, moment, uh, then I'm closer to God and more acceptable to Him because of my obedience. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever felt that? Well, I have. And, and then there are the good things, the acts of service, deeds of love, uh, things that you do out of kindness. Maybe you take a meal uh, to someone, or you give someone a ride, or you watch their uh, child, or you help with some uh, big task. And you don't do it with any thought of being thanked or receiving uh, any gifts in kind. Uh, but do you feel more acceptable to God on the weeks that you do this, and less acceptable when you don't? Have you ever thought that or felt that? I have. These are the foundations Christians build on that actually add to Christ Jesus. Jesus in my rule keeping, Jesus plus my obedience to the law, Jesus plus my service and good deeds. And if you do these things to be acceptable, you're in bondage, you're still a slave. And you're missing something very fundamental. You will never keep the Ten Commandments so perfectly that they could ever uh, be a foundation for your relationship with God. At best, my service and your service, our deeds are marked 
with pride and self-concern. You simply cannot scrub them out of your heart. And so my best prayers, my best preaching, my best service are all barred by sin. They can never be a part of the foundation of my relationship with God. I need to repent of my best deeds, my obedience, lest I add them to what Christ has done. Let me say that again. I need to repent of my best deeds and my obedience lest I seek to add them to what Christ has done. I need to repent of my repentance and even my tears over my sins because those two are stained with pride and self-interest. They are filthy rags to God. You see, you must break up the foundation of anything other than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Anything. There's only one way to approach the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and that's as a response of gratitude for what God and His grace has done for you in Christ Jesus. I tell the truth because Jesus has made me acceptable, clean, and pure, and unblemished before God. And I want to have an inner life, a heart that's truthful like God's. In other words, I want there to be integrity between who I am on the inside and who I am as I relate to other people. But often, this is what happens, and this is what happens especially uh, to you boys and girls and to those of you who are students. It can happen so subtly. You accept Jesus, uh, you invite him into your heart, into your life, and you repent. And then what you're really often thinking, what you may come away with the impression is, is that I'm going to stop being bad and I'm now going to be good. And often that's how the foundation for moralism begins. It's deceptively innocent, and it is bondage. And I don't want any of you to think that that's Christianity, because it is not. Christianity is not your being good. Now, there's a second way that Christians lose their freedom and add to their foundation. And the whole book of Galatians says this again and again, that a genuine Christian uh, can understand that Christ alone is the foundation for your acceptance, and yet functionally, in your heart, rely on something else. Something else becomes the foundation that you, you add to Christ in order to maintain your relationship with Him. And this is often easier to detect in our thoughts and feelings. And you could say this is psychological. It's a psychological loss of freedom. Here's what it looks like. With our mouths we say Christ alone makes us acceptable, but in our hearts and our desires we add, and if our marriage goes well, or we have well-behaved children, or teens who do not rebel, or adult children who are successful or at least stable and responsible, or my child's happiness, 
or the approval of my parents. Christ and the approval of my parents. Christ and financial freedom. Christ and freedom from any demands on my uh, time or any expectations of me. Christ and other people's respect. But anything you add to Christ as your requirement to be happy, to be content in life, to feel fulfilled, well, it becomes a harsh master and it actually enslaves you. Uh, and it pushes you around with fears and drives you to do things you would not do otherwise. Why? Well, because you have to have it. And that leaves you in bondage. You are a slave because you must have it. If you have to have Jesus plus happy children, what are you going to do if they grow up and make terrible choices and reject your values? Perhaps are even alienated from you. Well, you'll be crushed and your relationship with God will go into the dumpster. Adding Jesus plus something else to your foundation is the cause of the problem. You're still in spiritual bondage. These are idols, and they need to be forsaken to be free. Now we'll come back to that again and again as we walk through this letter. And last of all, there's the cultural bondage. The dynamics in this meeting unfolded in the early church are always with us. There are always a danger that the church uh, and Christians falling into cultural uh, bondage. Now, we don't say you must be circumcised and keep kosher, but it's very easy for us to take some other cultural value and add it to the foundation of Jesus Christ. And actually, probably for most of us, unless you've spent an extended time uh, in another culture, you're mostly kind of unaware, really, of how much what you do is just a function of culture. And probably 60, 70, maybe as much as 80% of what happens in the life of a church is culturally determined. It doesn't rest on the teaching of Scripture itself. So, if you're, this is how it comes out in us. If you're a real Christian or a fully mature Christian, you will look like this. In many churches that means no tattoos, but in some churches it means tattoos. In many churches it means no piercing. In other churches, piercing is quite all right. Matter of fact, you might feel a little out. Uh, in some churches, there are cowboy churches in Texas. Well, you'd better dress like you're in cowboy uh, church. You know, really, it's a thing. I know you, you doubt me. Just check it out uh, later uh, today. Um, uh, and this happens. You have to think like us about politics or about some social issue. You have to like our kind of music. You have to smell like us, clean, bathed, and perfume. You have to show up to things on time. Or don't think about time at all. What really counts is the event. There are all sorts of things that the Bible says absolutely nothing about, and they're just cultural things. The Bible never says the church needs to end by noon. <laughs> Nor does it, that has a lot to do with when we tend to eat lunch in our culture. Uh, it never says the church needs to be at 11. I know you all start at 10, but for many, many years, 11 was the time. That's because of the culture 
of small farming. Most people were small farmers, and cows like to be milked on time. And you don't ignore your cows when they need to be milked. You lose production over time. The gospel leads to cultural freedom. The gospel is transnational, transracial, and transcultural, so that it can enter in and impact any nation, any racial group, any ethnicity, and any culture. And so we can take the gospel uh, to different people and preserve its essence. And this is very important in reaching people. It's very important in Japan. You must adopt much of Japanese culture if you want to be an effective missionary in Japan. You can't turn up your nose and say, I can't stand the way you do this in Japan. <laughs> that just that won't work. And this is true uh, here as well. You see, if any cultural value is lifted up as essential, it means that people who don't share it feel excluded and alienated. You don't have to say it to them. They'll sense it. So if we fail uh, to adapt the gospel message at all to the interests of people, or we over-adapt it to the interests of people, we'll lose its essence and we'll fail to persuade and win people into the joy and the freedom of the gospel. So some churches over-adapt to the prevailing culture by removing the offensive elements of the gospel. That's not a risk uh, for us here. But they water down the truth claims that there's only one way to God. They remove uh, the troubling idea that we've offended a holy God, and so they don't talk about sin. They minimize or ignore completely the sexual ethic of the New Testament. They deny uh, miracles, especially the resurrection. And then the gospel itself is lost. It ends up, uh, we end up having to save ourselves by being good. That's what you've got left. On the other hand, it's possible to go too far and fail to adapt. And for many churches, this is, they're so wed to their traditions that they're unwilling to make changes and incorporate the tastes and sensibilities of outsiders. If you underadapt, you lose the gospel too. If you raise your traditions to the point of essentials, non-negotiables, then you create a kind of legalism. Real Christians always do this. Mature Christians do church this way. Even our theological distinctives, and I hold the Westminster Confession of Faith, Reformed faith increasingly became clear to me the very first year I was a Christian because I read my Bible a lot. And slowly, slowly, as I saw God's sovereignty, the rest of it slowly worked its way out. And then I discovered there was this whole group of Christians that see and understand the Bible the way I do, and they're called Reformed. And uh, uh, so I hold these distinctions. But you see, when they're held as essentials, like real Christians believe in predestination the way we do, or election the way I do, that what you're doing is you're excluding people who are in fact Christians and undermine the unity of the church. And you're also losing the opportunity uh, to winsomely 
uh, expose them to the beauty of uh, the faith that probably most of you share with me here. It's the same thing with believer's baptism, though, again, that's not, that's not a, a distinctive for us. So Paul's great fear in coming to Jerusalem and risking the meeting with the apostles was not that he would find his gospel defective, just half a gospel. No, it was that the leaders would fail to discern what was at stake or just chicken out and cave under the pressure of those who insisted that Judaism, adoption of it and its ways, were essential to being Christian. And God was surely with him in that meeting. He fought for our freedom in that meeting, and he won. But it's up to us in each generation to grapple with its implications and to wrestle what it means for us personally. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you and you alone are the only way we can be acceptable to God. We thank you uh, for your living and dying and rising so that the only and single foundation to be pleasing to God and to have his favor, that's been secured You've revealed it to us in the gospel, and we've embraced it in faith. And so there's nothing else that we must do. Reveal to us if there is something subtle going on in our hearts, no matter how subtle, that we might not be enslaved again. We ask this in your strong name.